You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded at the American Bar Association's mid-year meeting in San Diego, California. We're here to cover this event for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have the panelists from, hang on, let me get this right, the Cars, Cars, Cars program. It's sponsored by the section of state and local government. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank Thank you. you. Great to be here. We're going to start to my left. Uh, I'm going to have ask everybody to introduce themselves. Tell us uh, where you work and what do you do and where you're from. And so, uh, Brian, let's start with you. Yes, I'm Brian Soublay. I'm chief counsel for the California Department of Motor Vehicles. I work in our headquarters office in Sacramento, and I supervise a legal division staff of about 60 employees. Excellent. And Althea? Uh, my name's Althea Cullen. I'm an assistant attorney general at the Oregon Department of Justice, and I work in the consumer protection section, and the vast majority of my cases deal with automotive issues. Excellent. And Kit? I'm Kit Walsh. I'm a staff attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We're a member-supported nonprofit that supports digital civil liberties in the context of new technologies. Excellent. And Mark? I'm the co-chair of Information, Security, Governance, and Privacy at Troutman Sanders. All right. And Tony? Uh, hi, I'm Tony Magistro. I'm a partner at Powell Magistro in Charleston, West Virginia, and I was the moderator of the panel, and I'm the uh, co-chair of the Attorney General and Just- Justice Issues Committee. Thank you for introducing yourselves. Uh, in preparation for this, I got to talk with uh, some of the other people involved in putting on this uh, panel discussion. And I got to say, I'm a little scared of my car now. So I guess, uh, Tony, because you were the moderator, let's get sort of the 50,000-foot synopsis as to what your event was about. Well, I think we have lots of computers in cars. Uh, the Before, when cars were first came out, they were mechanical devices. And through the 70s, 80s, 90s, through the 2000s, computers became more and more prevalent in the cars. And what our panel is about today is the newest technologies that, that are in cars, including uh, um, to the point where we may replace our cars with, uh, replace ourselves as drivers with, with the computers in the cars. And what challenges that has in terms of regulating the vehicles, regulating the safety, regulating the security, and regulating the privacy. Okay, so I heard a little bit about driverless cars, and I know there's some other issues. So uh, how about a volunteer? What were some of the other topics you talked about? So in addition to the driverless car issues, we talked about the cars that are on the road today and how the computers in them uh, are in control of sensors and safety features that track a lot of data about the drivers and are responsible for keeping you safe. We talked about um, the, the different approaches to securing vehicles and how independent security researchers historically have been very important in exposing ways that vehicles have not been adequately secured and some legal ways that manufacturers of vehicles have tried to restrict the ability to do that. Now I'm picking up on a little bit of privacy issues here. Was there some, uh, some passionate discussion as to some of these innovations, whether or not we should be doing them or not? We, we talked about some of the concerns with respect to the privacy when vehicles start relying on mapping and knowing where you go as, a, as an operator or driver of a vehicle and what are your privacy interests in, in the manufacturer actually knowing where you use your vehicle and when you use your vehicle. And the thoughts of what protections that should be built in regulations to to allow you to have some say on what what is done with your information. Okay, so uh, obviously they're not going to be our listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but just a show of hands, who's scared of some of the privacy issues that are coming down the pipeline for cars? I've got Kit, I've got Althea, I've got Tony, but Mark and uh, and Brian, you guys are embracing. 
If you think of the safety case for, for automated vehicles, 32,000 people a year die on our roads. And in 95% of those instances, there was a human error that caused it. The mobility promise for the disabled, the elderly. I'm part of that baby boomer generation, and probably in 13, 14 years, my son has to say, Dad, give me the car keys. The, if you have an automated vehicle, it's the promise of mobility into the future. So I, I'm, I'm not as worried about some of the issues that people are addressing right now. I think they'll work out. I think Mark was going to say something. I was just going to say from my perspective, uh, in terms of cybersecurity perspective, I just don't think that interconnectivity necessarily makes um, the type of risks and issues you're dealing with on the road any more prevalent than they are already now. Um, so, I mean, one of the first things I thought of was if my car re really can at least be semi-automated, uh, you know, if I drink a little too much, you know, with uh, Brian after hours at the ABA conference, we could probably get on a car that, you know, would be able to take us where we need to go, the airport, right? So, I don't know, um, mixed feelings, but I think I'm definitely much more on the pro end. And Kit, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I'm in favor of driverless cars as long as we do it right. I don't want to have a driverless car that is collecting data about me, about where I go, about what doctors I visit and who I'm seeing, you know, who, where I'm staying overnight, and then using it for a marketing database and creating a database that the government can query. I don't often interject my opinion on this, but I don't trust computers in my dating life, and I don't think I'm going to trust them to drive me around, but I think it's a cool idea. I do think it's a cool idea, but I really do enjoy driving my own car, just, just the privilege of it and uh, having control of the vehicle. But I am aware that uh, in a lot of instances, we're using this driverless mode of, uh, for transportation in flight. And there's no way the pilots are able to do all those micro corrections on their own flying these big jets that we get on. So I guess... I guess I'll have to get over because it looks like this is the wave of the future. But I want to kind of get back into some of the privacy issues here just a little bit and uh, maybe kind of bounce forward to the copyright part of it. So now we've got cars collecting information. I know that when I was in San Francisco, I uh, rented a car and I just wanted to charge my phone. I saw one of those USB plugs, didn't think anything of it. And all of a sudden I noticed the radio was on. And so I turn up the volume, like, oh, this is a great radio channel. It kind of reminds me of my Pandora. And so uh, all of a sudden I realized that it had tapped into my phone, didn't ask, and just started playing music straight off my phone. And so I felt a little bit spooked out by it that something happened automatic. But, uh, you know, what, what other types of information do you think are going to be collected from cars going forward? I think part of it is information that's necessary for, if it's an automated car, it's going to have to collect information necessary for it to be able to pick out the, what is the correct route. And so that information is going back into the cloud, and then, it, and then it becomes a sharing basis. So that, for example, if I drove down a street this morning that was clear, but during the day the water main broke, the vehicles that proceeded after that know that. And so by the time I get ready to go back, the car will already know that and be able to adjust a course on the basis of that. So, and, and um, you know, from, from my perspective, I, I, think, I think one of the things in which, uh, you know, a, a lot of the public aren't able to appreciate sometimes is that uh, organizations actually accidentally end up with some of your data and they don't, I, I can assure you that from a risk perspective, they don't even want to have to have, to have had it in the first instance. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, some of it, some of the data is gonna be, you know, things which are essential to the function in which they were contracted for or they've been asked to do. And, you know, if there is a bad 
uh, process in terms of you know not that not being deleted thereafter. Uh, you know, I, I think people forget sometimes that it's also people working at organizations and companies, and it's not necessarily that there's always some ill will just because they're associated with a uh, larger organization. I think I want to, to talk to Kit because you, you work for the EFF, and so um, you know, right now this is still pretty new, and so I, I'm hearing that private companies have access to our private information, but. I think my automobile is one of the most regulated things that, that I own. And so I'm wondering, how far behind is the government? What are you hearing? What, what is the government able to collect from cars today? Basically, when a private company assembles a database of private information about customers, you know, often this is an online service, but they collect it in order to monetize it, use it for their business purposes. And then the government says, hey, that looks pretty juicy. Um, and then they have a variety of tools to go after data that's been collected. Sometimes they think they don't need a warrant in order to do wide investigations of ordinary citizens uh, who are not suspected of a particular crime for whom you could not get a warrant. So it's basically if you build it, they will come for, for the government. Um, one of the aspects of today's discussion um, which you mentioned copyright issues, uh, also affects privacy. It's basically the idea that um, because software is considered copyrightable, there have been these avenues created for manufacturers to keep you, the owner of a car, from looking under the hood and seeing what data it's collecting about you, or if it's safe, or if it's vulnerable to cyber attack, or doing your own repairs. A wide variety of things that traditionally have been lawful under Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, they think, are unlawful. Uh, and so I talked about the legal process that wrapped up um, this past year, whereby we established some new protections for the owners of vehicles to be able to do that research and repair work. I want to unpack that a little bit. When I was in high school, I had an old beater car and I used to tinker with it and, you know, try to get it to go a little faster, get it to make more noise. And uh, so anyway, you know, these were things I didn't even think about. I go to the auto parts store. I just pick up the tools I wanted. I do my own work. But now it sounds like going forward, there's some laws and regulations that keep you from, I guess, you know, lack of a better term, pimping your own ride. So where where is the let's walk through some of the restricted activities as you're seeing this going forward. Again, look, you know, I'm private industry, and sometimes I wish I was, you know, I sat more in, uh, you know, your shoes where I'm actually able to affect policy. But from my perspective, you know, on, on the on the copyright issues, I don't think it, I just don't think it's as black and white as that because I think some of these consequences you're talking about were things which were created in response to other problems. So, for example, um, you know. You don't want people to look at source codes, for example, like, you know, in the, the Trans-Pacific uh, trans uh, you know, Agreement, which is being negotiated right now, is because China's always demanding that when you implement any software in China, or you're trying to sell any software, you give them their source code. And then what they do is they wall you off behind that great wall of China, and, you know, you're not able to sell your products, which they copied, and then they're making a copy over there. So uh, I think organizations are trying to address a lot of these different issues different geographies, different segments of the population in response to different needs, different issues. And, and yes, unfortunately, some of the issues in which, you know, Kit is raising, they're definitely legitimate concerns, but it's just, it's not, you know, lawmakers, I think they're human too, um, just like organizations and just like the people advocating for consumers, right? I think it's, it's an imperfect system and everybody's just trying their best. I mean, that, that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah, to be really clear, there was no intentional law passed to keep people from, uh, from doing repairs 
and other work in their cars. It's an unintended consequence of a law that was passed to keep you from uh, ripping DVDs and, and using the contents to infringe on the owner's copyrights. But because software is typically considered copyrightable, and because uh, in, in many vehicle computers there are these technical protection measures or digital rights management that keep you out of it, that's why there's a way for manufacturers to argue that you're liable if you do a whole bunch of things that were, are generally lawful to do with software if there's no lock on it, like reverse engineer it. That's lawful. Once you sell a product into the marketplace, if I can figure out you know, how the code works, that's lawful under copyright law, but there's an argument it's not under the DMCA, and that's why we went to the copyright office. Well, Althea and uh, Brian have been quiet, and so has Tony, and that's not a good thing for the moderator. So uh, I, I see there's some other issues on here. There was uh, bypass emissions uh, were discussed, uh, aging airbags, ignition failure, and uh, some cheat devices. I think that recently came up with, was it Volkswagen that uh, was having some problems with that? So Volkswagen with the emissions? Yeah, I, I think that would be where we, we step in. And I think it's, um, it's really evident as to the type of cases that we work on from state offices that have been quiet during the emerging technology section because, you know, we're not regulators and we work with statutes that were designed in the 70s and they are, an element of our consumer protection statutes is that it's a consumer to business transaction. And so how, how do you articulate the loss of somebody's ability to you know, for privacy or to um, to work on some of these software issues within a vehicle in the context of a consumer-to-business transaction. Is that something that you're transacting for? And in the 70s, certainly that wasn't. Um, and now it sounds like it's something that people are starting to consider within their transactions. And potentially you have issues of failure to disclose material defects. Um, and so you're starting to see more cases as they percolate up through our our folks that are on the forefront of the technology, you'll eventually see cases, you know, five, six years from now, where state AGs are using state enforcement laws, consumer protection laws, to address these issues. And I think as we get regulators more involved in regulating a, a, a new technology, one of the concerns becomes is that we have to rely on the representations that the manufacturers make to us. And so some of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years, the, the, the key fob issue with General Motors, the emissions issues with Volkswagen, can you as a regulator stand by the, what has been the traditional way that vehicle, the new technology is introduced, where the manufacturer just certifies to the regulator, yes, it is safe. And so what we have to look at is should there be some other mechanism that assures the regulator that indeed when the manufacturer says, yes, our systems are safe, are they? And should there be a process to, to double check that? I have a comment about uh, federal versus state powers here. And so I remember when I was taking constitutional law in law school, one of the things that my professor introduced was that it, it hasn't changed since the start of our country, basically, is that there's these, these times when the federal government has a lot of power, and then all of a sudden it switches over to the states and it goes back and forth. And I think I think I'm sensing that we're kind of coming to the end of a high federal power watermark in favor of the states flexing a little muscle. And I just wanted to kind of open the floor for that in regards to automobiles. I don't think that's the case, because um, with the introduction, what happened probably starting about five, six years ago was the introduction of legislation on state-by-state -state basis to have states involved in the regulation of the technology. 
the industry doesn't want that, and we states don't want that. And the problem with that is, is that you wind up having individual different standards for vehicle safety on a state-by-state -state basis, which is an area that has traditionally been within the power of the federal um, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So really, I think the action by the states has prompted an organization like NHTSA to look out there and say, okay, we need to be more active in this space. And, and no matter what happens, no matter what regulations we come up with in California, if they conflict with some safety standards that NHTSA comes up with, they are going to be preempted by federal law. So, so it's interesting Brian says that because I think that's absolutely true when you're comparing like earlier law like Nevada's, right, to like later like Washington, D.C. You could, you could very clearly see the definition of a, what's an automated vehicle. It's very problematic when you're looking at it state across state because what may be considered an automated vehicle in one and therefore governed and controlled by the statutes and the regu regulations that are promulgated, therefore, um, may not necessarily be the same in the other one, yeah. A good example is under Nevada's autonomous vehicle regulations, you have to have a specific license plate. It's a red license plate for the vehicle. But if you're driving... This is for a driverless car? For, for a drive. Well, there's not a true driverless car that's out there, but some of the stuff that's experimented with. So it's the systems that still have to have a person behind the wheel. So red beware, is that what that's all about? It, it was just to, to identify the vehicle. Okay. Um, but there's no requirement like that in California. So if you drive, if you're in Reno and you drive an autonomous vehicle that's under testing into California, when you cross the state line, they're taking the license plate off the car and, and then putting like a California plate on it because we don't require a special license plate on the vehicle. Well, I have one last question for all of you. And so I'm going to start with Tony because Tony's been very quiet. So uh, my last question here is on a scale of 1 to 10, how scared should I be of my car? Tony? Uh, I'd say about a six. A six? Okay, Mark? Depends on the kind of car you drive. Okay, Kit? Depends on whether you have access to the software. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Mark and Kit have negated my skill, but that's okay, so I'm going to go to Althea. I like Mark's answer. I'm going to go with depends what kind of car you drive. Okay, okay, we'll finish out with Brian. I think when you look at the statistics about how, how accidents occur, I don't think you should be scared of your car. You should be scared of the person in the car next to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll close on that. So we've definitely run out of time today, but this was a fun interview. I really liked it. It was actually the, uh, it kind of just grabbed me when I was looking at the, uh, the American Bar Association schedule of events. But uh, if our listeners have questions or they want to follow up, uh, what's the best way to reach out? We'll start back with Brian. My email address, um, that's uh, Brian, B-R-I-A-N dot Souble, S-O-U-B-L-E-T at dmv.ca.gov, G-O-V. Uh, my email, uh, which is long as well, it's althea, A-L-T-H-E-A dot D dot colon, C-U-L-L-E-N at D-O-J dot state dot O-R dot U-S. That is the longest email I've ever heard in my life. How about you, Kit? So for press inquiries, press at EFF.org. And if you are a person who is facing a legal threat or otherwise needs legal advice, we do direct representation and we run a referral network. And you should email info at EFF.org. Awesome. And Mark? Uh, I'm Mark with a K dot M-A-O at TroutmanSanders.com. Tony, you get the last word? A Majestro, A-M-A-J-E-S-T-R-O at PowellMajestro.com, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-A-J-E-S-T-R-O.com. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. Are you
guys. That was awesome. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.